Well, there are times uh, when victories feel like defeats. Am I right, Dog Nation? (laughs) Georgia fans understand this. Uh, There are times when defeat can feel like a victory, and there are some Nickel State football players and fans that probably feel that way this morning. If you'd have no idea what happened yesterday in a football game, that's okay. We're not going to linger there, but... It fits with what we're talking about today. Sometimes, though, you, you, to gain victory, you pay such a heavy price to win that it is, it is as if you've lost. Um, in, in football, just if you, if you, if your quarterback's kind of injured, has a has an injury from early in the game, and yet it's the last seconds of the game, down by. Uh, five points, and here we have an opportunity to score. And so the quarterback sneak, and he he pounds through the line and just makes it across the goal line, but just gets a season-ending or career-ending injury. Then that win, it feels like a loss. It is as if you've lost. There's a, there's a there's a term in when in, t- in, talking, in speaking of military warfare, it's called pyrrhic victory. A pyrrhic victory. It's it's named after a. Third century BC a battle, and, and and what it means it's when a it's when a battle inflicts such a heavy toll on the winning army that it negates any supposed achievement or gain. And so, an example would be in our own nation's history, the Battle of, battle of Bunker Hill and the American Revolutionary War. So you had this ragtag group of colonial militiamen who are who are holding their ground against this large larger uh, they're outnumbered. This, this milita- uh, the, the weapons of the British Army was greater, and so they have this. this they're, they're outnumbered, and that they're holding their ground against the British forces. And eventually, the the redcoats force the colonists to retreat. But almost half of the British Army died of, of that particular group died in that battle, and so it was hailed by the patriots as. Kind of a moral victory, even though they lost the battle. The British General William Howe afterwards lamented that success had been too dearly bought. Uh, The colonist leader, Nathaniel Green, wrote that he wished the colonists could sell the British another hill at the same price. If they could keep winning victories like that, winning battles like that, then we'll win the war, is what he's saying. Well, at the end of John 11... Jesus' enemies, they're plotting their strategy for Jesus' defeat. And their plan is simply this, is to destroy Him. It's to kill Him. That's exactly what they will do. But So humanly speaking, they win. They, they fulfill their strategy. They win the battle. And Jesus loses. Because the cross, it, it feels like defeat. But it is not, is it, brothers and sisters? It is victory. We've been singing about this all morning. And this is, the, this is the main thought this morning, is that the cross of Jesus is this victorious defeat. It sounds oxymoronic, but we'll see what you mean. There's a, there's a new worship song by David Crowder. It's called My Victory, and there's this line that I just love. It's, it's that your, your death is hell's defeat. A cross meant to kill is my victory. And that's, that captures what we see here at the end of John 11. So this morning's passage, it, it's looking forward to something that we're looking back upon as we come to the table this morning in just a little bit. And as we remember the cross, this passage is anticipating 
it, it's, it's soon coming. And so today, as you know, is a day of remembrance. A day of remembrance for our nation. Fifteen years. That's just really hard to believe. Fifteen years. And so we say things. We will not forget. There's a big banner on the Fayette County Square. Fayette County will not forget 9-11. And so... This date also, as, as many of you know, has unique significance for this own local church. This is, a, this is a day in which there was sin that came to light just a year ago. And so, as bearing those realities in mind, what we want to do this morning is we want, we want, we want our minds to be drawn to a different kind of remembrance, a better remembrance. And we want to see those other memories and those hard memories through the lens of this remembrance, this table that's set here. Body that was broken, blood that was shed. Do this in remembrance of me. Because we, when we remember things, remember events, remember dates, we're, we're usually remembering something that was either tragic or triumphant. So you have Independence Day and, and, and this, this is kind of a triumphal memory. And then there's days like today. It's, it's tragic. It's hard. This table, it's a unique blend of both. It's, it's a body that we're remembering. It's broken. It's blood that was spilled. It's death. But it's, it's victory. It's life. It's, it's resurrection. And so it, it helps us remember Jesus' victorious defeat. And so this is our plan for this morning. We're going to finish John 11 today. John 11. And, and so what we see in the end of John 11 is, is, are these aftershocks of Lazarus' resurrection. And these aftershocks become kind of the, the tremors that really anticipate Jesus' own crucifixion. So the next death, the next burial, the next tomb will be Jesus's. And in God's providence, we're looking at kind of a transitional passage here at the end of John 11. But these verses, we're looking here on Communion Sunday because the crux of this passage is a crux. It's a cross. That's the focus here. The whole message this morning, in a sense, is just kind of a pre-communion exhortation and encouragement for us. And so I want us to this to be the capstone of all that we do is come and eat and to drink and remember Christ and Him crucified together. So as we look in John 11, it's hard to overestimate the significance and, and the effect that Lazarus' resurrection had upon Jerusalem and the surrounding area. You just can't overstate it. You, this, this miracle witnessed by so many in the shadow of Jerusalem sent shockwaves through the region. I mean, this is why when we turn to John 12 and we get down into, uh, uh, into verse 12 and following, we have this, we call the triumphal entry, and you're seeing all this opposition, all this opposition to Jesus, and yet we find Him, crowds lining the streets, Hosanna to the Son of David! Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! And they're laying palm branches, and they're celebrating. It's this tragically ironic scene. But what explains that scenario is what's happened just two weeks prior to that, is that Christ rose Lazarus from the dead and was witnessed by so many. And so, Jesus, he, he doesn't do these miracles. He didn't do this miracle. He doesn't do other signs or wonders to, 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 to stir crowds up into some kind of frenzy. That's not the point. This is not for, their, for entertainment value. He doesn't do it to amuse or fascinate the public. That's not it. He does these things so that people might believe in Him. That He's the Son of God. 
Remember John's purpose in writing this gospel account at the end of the end of his book, John 20 verse 31. These signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And that is the exact effect that Lazarus' resurrection has. Look at it again with me. Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what He did, believed in Him. The Spirit blew, as John 3 says, wherever it willed. And, and some trusted in Christ and were born again. They believed have life in His name. But not everybody. Some, no doubt, were interested in Jesus. They were fascinated. They were curious. Wondering what, what is going on. What this all means. And what do they do? Their response is to run to the Pharisees. Verse 46, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Uh-oh. <laughs> Jerusalem, we have a problem. And so this, this, the, the, this, what we see in the verses that follow is what, what effect this has on the religious establishment there in Jerusalem. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered the council. Emergency meeting. Pharisees called the chief priests. Together they went, got the Sadducees together, and brought the Sanhedrin, the supreme court of, of Israel together, and they said, we've got to meet. We've got to talk. This is serious. And they said, this is amazing. Lazarus lives. He was dead, but he lives. We, 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 we should probably investigate to make sure it's true, to make sure this has actually happened, but hallelujah. No. <laughs> they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we go, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place, the temple, and our nation. Notice, they don't, they don't deny Jesus' miracles. They're not questioning the facts. And they, 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 didn't, they believed what happened, in a sense. They, 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 there was no denying that, and that was without cell phone video and YouTube and all of that. There was no questioning what happened. But they've, they've, they've long since, you know, that was kind of their earlier tactics in, in opposing Jesus, was try to discredit Him and... And deny what he did. But they've long since given that up. It's not possible. So they're not interested in evidence. They're not interested in truth. What are they interested in? Survival. Survival. And I just say, brothers and sisters, this is the same. It's still true today. The root of unbelief is not insufficient evidence. It's self-interest. And so you're not going to be able to argue someone into believing in Jesus Christ. It didn't work for you and it won't work for anybody else. You would be better off having a holy argument with God, as the Puritans used to call prayer, and, and, and pleading with God for their salvation as you proclaim the gospel to them. But it's not insufficient evidence. And so, so it's, for them, the, the problem is self-preservation. That's the concern. How did, how did the religious elite stand to lose everything if Jesus kept on performing signs? What, what, how do they make this connection? Well, there's this growing sense among common Jewish people, those that witness miracles like this and Jesus' other signs, that Jesus just might be the Messiah. He might be the promised one. King of Israel. And the people, they're starving for deliverance from Rome, 
from that oppressive regime. And, and, and the Jewish populace could kind of get whipped up in some kind of Zionist frenzy with, with all that Jesus is doing now and raising a man from the dead. And so they could set Jesus up as their king and they could claim sovereignty from Rome as a nation and this would not be good. Rome would not take to this kindly. Rome would swoop in and just crush them. It would be, I mean, we had the incident with the in Turkey and that, that brief about six hour revolution that was just squashed. I mean, this is that kind of response that, that they're fearing. And so if Jesus becomes popular, the, the Roman authorities, they'll, they'll smell insurrection and they will act and they will act swiftly and violently. And the Jewish people will be scattered around the Roman Empire because they won't, they won't let them group together and their identity will be lost. And, and so the Sanhedrin will lose its place of power, obviously. They're, they'll lose their, 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 their religious status and social status and among God's people. And they'll become refugees like every, everyone else. They stand to lose everything if Jesus continues to go on. That's how they see it. And so the Pharisees, the chief priests, they raise the threat level to code red. Imminent national threat. Verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, they had one year terms, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than not that the whole nation should perish. Now, this guy is a real piece of work. <laughs> I mean, we, we learn bits and pieces elsewhere. But he, he's a priest, but he's a godless priest. He's a hypocrite. He's sly. He's manipulative, he's opportunistic, he's rude, he's, he's arrogant. And, 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 this, and it's, just, it's just ugly. His father-in-law, Annas, was the high priest before him. So it's this priest, it's, it's this kind of family, it's like the Jewish mafia. It's like the family business. And so it's just bad. He's a bad guy. And so Caiaphas, is, he's a Sadducee. And the Sadducees, remember, they don't get along with the Pharisees. They're kind of the political liberals. And Pharisees are the fundamentalists. And so they don't get along. So he listens to the concerns of the Pharisees and expressed. And then he just answers by showing contempt for them. He says, you know nothing at all. You, you ignorant know-nothings. Shut your mouths. Listen to me. It, it, just, just kill him. This is all you got to do. Just kill him. It's better that he should die than that that the Romans should come in and kill us. Substitute Jesus for us. That's it. This is not hard. And he, and he acts like he's concerned for the welfare of the nation, like he really cares about people, like he really cares about God's glory and the nation and the temple. But there's no concern. It's only himself that he cares about. It's self-interest. It's survival. Verses 51 to 52, there's an explanation of John. And we're going to come back and that will really be our focus for the morning. That's where our outline will come from. Verse 53, let's just skip that for now. So from that day on, they made plans to put him, Jesus, to death. So Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. So he withdraws again. Now, because he's afraid of the Sanhedrin, that's not it. It's not his time. And that's been, 
That's been what's driving Jesus' decision. It's not my time yet. It's not time. And so read 55 to 57, this Jesus finds himself on Israel's most wanted list. He's got crosshairs on his chest. They're ready to look, they're looking for him, and they're ready to take him out when he comes in for the Passover. Now, if we just read those verses, skipped over verses 51 and 52, it, it looks like this is what, this is all about what religious, yes, religious people can be evil people. What religious, evil, unbelieving people are, are doing, are planning to do to Jesus. His defeat, his death is being planned. But in verses 50 to 52, we, we get to see God's perspective on all that's happening. We get to see reality. And so, the, we come away with a, a different interpretation of Jesus' defeat, it is in fact God's victory. It is, like we said, the cross of Christ is this glorious, victorious defeat. And so look at it with me again in verse 50. Caiaphas says, It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John gives this comment under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so in these verses here, I want us to just consider four reasons that this apparent tragedy of Jesus' death and demise is actually this glorious victory that we've been singing about already this morning. First reason is this, is that the way of the cross is not a recalculated route. You, you, you know about recalculated routes if you use GPS on your phone or in your car or something like that. You start driving a route, and, or you, you, you start following, uh, you input your destination into the little machine, and it lays out a route for you. You start following that route, you get distracted because you're praying or texting or whatever it is that you're doing, and eating cereal or whatever you do in the car, or putting on makeup, so you miss your turn. And, oh, oh, I was supposed to turn there. So what does the little machine say? Recalculating. It's a little digital voice. So you go on a little further, and and maybe there's traffic. You can't get over. You're, you're not paying attention. You can't get over into the turn lane. And so nobody's letting you in, of course. And so you just got to go by. People honking their horn behind you. So you go past, recalculating. You come up. There's an accident ahead of you. The interstate shut down. you got to exit. Recalculating. I mean, what, what, what that machine is doing is it's just, it's responding to the variables of traffic and of your, um, you know, lack of awareness and, and paying attention. And so it, it's going to get you to the route, it's going to get you to the destination. But the route, who knows how it's, how you're going to get there. You could change many, many times and how it's, how you're going to end up there. Listen, Jesus' route to his destination was never recalculated. The cross is not a recalculation. And the way he got there is not a recalculation. God did not send Jesus into the world with the final destination in mind and with a preferred route. But he didn't know all the variables. He didn't know how, he didn't know about these meetings and what they would do and, and what kind of effect that resurrection of Lazarus from the dead would have on the people and on the populace and what kind of frenzy this would whip up. So, so there's just these kind of adjustments along the course, along the way. That is not how it worked. 
The path to the cross that Jesus went on was fixed by God, not determined by men. It's not a recalculated route. This is God's pre-planned route. It will not be modified. And John lets us see this. Again, Caiaphas schemes. It's better that one man die than that the whole nation perish. It sounds like he's directing events. He's making plans, but he doesn't have a clue about what he's, what he's really saying here and how God is using it. John, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit, tells us what this really means. It's God who puts this thought into his mind. It's God who puts these words into his mouth as he makes this statement. And these are the very words that guaranteed Jesus' death. This moment, this set everything in motion. Caiaphas wants Jesus dead, and he makes that case before the council. But in a far greater way, God is the one who is accomplishing his unchanging will through Caiaphas. God is over all their plans. There's, uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, we, we see this and as Peter is preaching it on Pentecost. He says, it's Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So it's, it's part of God's predetermined plan that Jesus be delivered up in this way. His, it was, it, he was in it from the start. He planned the cross and our salvation through the cross before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 tells us that. The death of Jesus was not, was not a tragic series of events where God just kind of managed to tweak those events and somehow make it turn out for our good. It was His plan, all of it, all along, set in love for our good. Not a recalculated route. Everything in John 11, including their evil plots and their evil scheming and their secret meetings, it's all according to plan. God is in Christ reconciling the world to Himself through this way of suffering in a far greater way than Caiaphas could ever possibly imagine. It was better that one man die and that the whole nation should perish. So Jesus' way of suffering, the path of the cross, the Via Dolorosa, it is not a recalculated route. And listen, brothers and sisters, there's, there's encouragement and help for us here too. Listen, your way of suffering is also not a recalculated route. Whatever you're going through, whatever pain, whatever loss, whatever sorrows, whatever sadness, whatever grief, whatever affliction, whatever, whatever it is, it's not, it's not uh, an alternate route. It's not a modification from God's plan for your life. God is not fine-tuning your life as, as it goes along. He's not simply responding to surprises and, and, and twists and turns, death, disease, pain, job loss, broken relationships, divorce, terrorism, persecution. Whatever. He's, not, he's, not, he's not recalculating. I mean, we see this we see, okay, so you say, okay, Jesus, yes, but not, not me, not us. That's not, Jesus, God doesn't have that kind of purpose in, in my suffering. We saw it already in John 11. 
Jesus, John made very clear and Jesus made it very clear that, that Lazarus' death was for his glory. The sorrow that Mary and Martha endured, he says it's for their good. There was purpose, there was meaning in it. It wasn't, it wasn't accidental. Jesus knew what was happening. It was, it was on purpose. It, was, it had a point. It was not meaningless. It was not wasted. All of that pain that led up to the resurrection of Lazarus. Now, do we know why we suffer in the ways that we do? With any kind of definition. No, we do not. We do, I, I do not know why. I do not, not know, I do not know exactly what the meaning is, but I am confident that God does. He knows. He doesn't recalculate. Do I know why Baraka's 9-11 happened? I do not. I don't know why some boys and families in our church just shake into the core. I do not know why. But the fact that Jesus' suffering and death has God's design all over it, it helps me. And it should help you. It it, it reminds us that there is grace through whatever suffering and pain and loss we endure. Just knowing that God, God is accomplishing His purpose. So we can trust Him. We can trust Him that He's sovereign, that He's good, that He's over the circumstances of our lives, even the really hard stuff. I don't know why words like Alzheimer's are in your vocabulary now and it's something you have to talk about or cancer or sexual abuse or or why you have to bury a, your child or your parent or your sibling or a friend or why parents have divorced. I don't know why. But I am helped by the fact that God does know. He does know. I turn to Romans 8. I know this is such a familiar passage, but I... I, I, I we got to we got to be helped by this as Paul just reaffirms what we're seeing here in John 11 Romans 8 and I'm just going to kind of skip through and read a few verses along the way but Romans 8 starting in verse 18 Paul says I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us now, it's not because Paul's sufferings were light. We know the stuff that he endured. It was tremendous. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And we ourselves, verse 23, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. So are you waiting for that day? The redemption of your body. For the Spirit, verse 26, skip down to verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now that is, don't, that's not just, geez, I don't know what to pray for. Should I pray for a SUV or a sedan? That's not what Paul is talking about. It's not the context. This is in the context of gut-wrenching, intense, agonizing, ongoing, deep pain and sorrow, what he calls groaning. And he says, verse 27, And he who searches the heart, searches heart, he knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God's will is in your suffering. And we know, we know, That for those who love God, 
all things work together for the good, for their good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So he can make this exclamation point, verse 31, if God is for us, who is against us? Those are not trite, empty, repetitious words. That is bedrock truth that you can stake your life upon, brothers and sisters. And I don't say that lightly. I'm not with, with, without a mind to the stuff that you're going through. There are things I know you're going through. There are things that I'd have no clue about. So take courage. No matter what situation you're in, no matter how horrible it is, God is still in firm control. He never lost it. He never will. We have evidence in John 11. If it's true of Jesus, it's going to be true for us in our situation. Reason number two, that the cross is victorious defeat. It's victory. Is this, is that the provision of the cross is for a substitute, not a supplement. It's about the essence, the meaning of the cross, a substitution, not supplementation. What do I mean by that? Well, the average Jew in Jesus' day, they were looking for a Messiah to supplement their life. They were looking for political deliverance. They were looking for a moral teacher. They were looking for a prophet to just tell them how to live. They were looking for a wonder worker, a healer that could, could take care of their physical ailments. They were, they were looking for supplementation. And you even see it in this passage. There streams of Jews going to Jerusalem to make purification for themselves. To maintain some kind of standing before God. And they're looking for Jesus. Interested, curious, and maybe He can help. But Jesus didn't come, listen, He did not come to live as your supplement. He came to die as your substitute. That is the essence. That's the meaning of the cross. We know this because He tells us, God tells us this through this pseudo-priest Caiaphas. Out of self-interest, He wants Jesus to be a substitute. Kill Him so we don't have to die. Substitute Jesus for us. But God meant more through His words. God was prophesying, speaking through this wicked man. And in God's design, He's saying, I will kill my son so I don't have to kill you. You'll be my substitute. Your substitute. We see this throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, one of the most notable places is in Isaiah 53. Sprinkled throughout. But verse 4, Jesus was smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 6, the Lord, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. God substituted Jesus for us. Caiaphas is thinking death for his survival. God is thinking life, only life, eternal life. God substitutes Jesus in our place to to face death because God knows that Christ will conquer death. And so the cross, the grave, is this gateway to eternal life for those who trust in Christ. The Father knows this. And so, so this is the essence of the cross, is that Christ stands and He suffers as our substitute. He's, it's substitution. There's a fancy theolo- theological word that you may have heard, or maybe not, but it's called vicarious atonement. Vicarious atonement. Vicarious just means to to stand in the place of another. To be a substitute. 
This is, this is what we sang just a little bit ago. Hallelujah, what a Savior. In my place, condemned he stood. Seal my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That's substitution. That's, that's our greatest need. That's, that's the, the thing we needed more than anything else. And that's exactly what God provided through Jesus. And that's what Caiaphas is unknowingly prophesying to right here. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Verse 18 of chapter 3 in 1 Peter. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Substitution. Now, dear brothers and sisters, what does that mean to you and I today? Well, one, if you have not trusted in Christ, maybe you're looking to Jesus as a supplement. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. You came in. You know things are kind of a mess in your life. You need some help. Your family needs help. Your marriage needs help. Your parent, as a parent, you're struggling. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you've lost your job. You're here. You're looking for a supplement. Maybe you made some bad decisions and you want to kind of clean up your act and, and you're here and you're, you're hoping that Jesus will just help you be a better person. I am not, I don't, I don't want to come up, sound angry or as if I'm mocking you for that, but brothers, listen to me, dear friend. If you're here and that's you, that is not why Christ came. That is not good news. That is not the gospel. He did not come to supplement your efforts and your works and your good deeds and your morality and your attempts to be a good family man or woman. That is not why He came. He came because you were without hope, without God in this world. He came because you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And He came to send. He sent Christ as your substitute. Stand in your place. To take the punishment, the wrath that you deserve for your sin. So that and to rise from the dead and to, to raise Christ from the dead so that anyone who trusts in Him and what He did to take your punishment, you can have life, eternal life in Him. That can be yours through faith. And so if you've not trusted in Christ, if maybe you've not, maybe this is your first day, you've been here for years and this is really how you think is Jesus' supplement. Maybe today would be the day of your salvation. You would confess your absolute neediness for Him, inability to please Him on your own. And say, I, I need a Savior. I need a substitute. Thank you for what you provided. I trust you and you alone. Do that now. And, and, and come talk to us and share with us. We'd love to hear more. But brothers and sisters, even if you have trusted in Christ as your substitute. And, and listen, you, you need to remember your sin has been dealt with. It is finished it's been taken care of. You you have a substitute. He didn't he's not, not not a supplement, not a little boost to your morality, not to just kind of get you over the wall of his righteousness and, and something to kind of add to a little bit of a deficiency that's had in your life so 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 that if you maybe maybe you've maybe you had a kind of a a, a modest spiritual diet and so you had a little Jesus to supplement that's how you're thinking but oh man your diet's terrible now and you're not even getting what you need so that's problematic no he came to replace he came to stand in your place and substitute for you and therefore if you are in Christ there is zero wrath left for you for your sin we sing this the wrath of God was satisfied Completely. There's nothing left. It was all poured out on Christ. It is finished. 
And this, so this truth of substitution is salve. It's a balm for our troubled souls. And we all struggle with this. It's great comfort in the face of our sin. I've read this quote before, but I'm going to read it again. And this is from Martin Luther. He says, The devil will continually come to you and say, You are a great sinner. I know this is, this is a struggle of my own life, and this is an intense battle that some of you face often. This is the constant whispering that you have in your ear. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. I don't mean the, a right, healthy conscience that, that, that leads us to God and His grace, and, but I mean just this constant guilt, shame. You're a sinner. And you are to say to Him, Yes, I am. What of it? I have one who paid the penalty for all of my sins. And the devil will come to you and say, You have no righteousness of your own to plead. And you say, You're right. What of it? I am clothed in another's righteousness that is perfect before God. See? This this doctrine of substitution, it is life to our souls, brothers and sisters. This is reason that the cross that looks like defeat is victory. Third reason, two more. The reason that the cross is victory is that the reach of the cross is worldwide. I mean, one of the things these verses show is that there is this unique place that Israel has in the redemptive purpose of God. And you see it there in verse 51 and 52. There is, there is a future for Israel. Literal, ethnic Israel. The cross then is this kind of promissory note that that guaranteeing Israel's future restoration by God in fulfillment of all of those promises in the Old Testament to the literal nation. So Jesus died for the nation, for Israel, so that as a nation, as a collective people, they will one day return to the Lord and believe upon Jesus Christ. The cross is what makes that possible. It doesn't just make it possible, it makes it guaranteed. And so there is that here. But John makes it clear that the effect of the cross isn't only for the Jews, but Jesus died, will die for the whole world. Verse 52, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So in the death of Christ, the scattered children of God will be brought back. God is gathering His people who have been scattered abroad. When He's saying His children scattered abroad, I don't think that's who Jews who have been scattered. I think He's talking about God's elect around the world. It's what He referred to in John 10, verse 16. He has other sheep, not of this fold. They must come also. I think that's who He's talking about. You see this illustrated in, in when Paul is preaching in Corinth in, in Acts chapter 18. And, and he gets this vision at night from the Lord. And God tells him through this vision, I have many people. I have many people in this city. Now he's, they're not saved yet. Those people that God has are not saved yet. But they, they will be saved through Paul's preaching of the gospel because they're God's chosen ones. And this is what he's saying. From all the nations, from all the ethnos, the ethnicities of the world, God is making one flock, one gathering. There's broad diversity, incredible unity. It's a vision you see in Revelation 5, 9 and 10. You, that with Jesus' blood, a people of God has been purchased from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And, and there to be one kingdom. So God has 
Scattered people, chosen people, sheep from all nations, all ethnicities, there will be one flock. That, that affects how we view the church. That affects how we view God's mission. This is, this is one of the things that compels us to just keep our foot, as I've said before, on the accelerator of world missions. We've got to see the gospel go, 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 go. We've got to support those who go. We've got to be sending out people to go. We've got to be giving sacrificially to see that those are cared for and that the resources are provided so that the gospel can go. We have our missions conference next month. Guys, be here. I don't just mean kind of show up late Sunday morning and, and then slip out. Right after the tsunami, be for everything. Add things. Invite missionaries. Have them in your home. If, they're, if those missionaries, a little sign-up sheet for meals goes out, yeah, they ought to be gone within minutes because we're so hungry to encourage and bless and serve and be supported and encouraged by those who are going. So, so this, is, this is part of it. Jesus' voice is still going out through the proclamation of the gospel. He's still gathering his own. The, the world missions is basically harvest time. It's bringing in God's elect as we proclaim the gospel. This also changes how we view about our own local assembly here. That Christianity isn't just Jesus and me. That's how we can tend to think. It, it, the community is the, the, the fullest expression of Christ in this passage and throughout the scriptures. The fullest expression of his mission is not a picture of an individual, but it's, it's a community. It's a diverse, blood-bought community. It's, it's a body. It's, it's one flock. It's one people. So that's, that's good. They don't begrudge the presence of people who are very different from you in the church. We, we, we ought to look different. We ought to be diverse. And so we have this picture of the church that is, is probably so wrong. We, if, we, if, you, if you just said, just picture in your mind the universal church, what does it look like to you? You probably think it's like this larger scale version of what's happening right here and what we look like and how we act like and how we sing and how, you know, how things go in our service. That's not probably it. <laughs> I hate to break it to you. We are a small minority throughout history and, and throughout the world today. We are not the majority Christian population in the world any longer. And we certainly haven't been throughout history. And so, so just, we need, we need a different, we need a large heartedness to think about the nations and our neighbors and one another here. And so this, this is good for us to see his mission is to gather people together, make them one, and that ought to be the heartbeat of ours to pull people in. Fourth reason, the mission is so, the, the cross is so, so victorious, is that the mission of the cross will succeed. And we've alluded to this already. It will succeed. Jesus, John says, verse 52, it's not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. And that's more than simply an invitation, an offer. It is that, but it's more than that. It's a promise that, it, that he will succeed. He's going to do it. Nothing, John 6:39. this is the will of whom has sent me, that, all, that of all that he has given me, I will lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. You cannot frustrate God and His sovereign purposes. And so, to you, if you've trusted in Christ and you are His child, it is because God gathered you to Himself. He chose you. He bought you. He brought you. He adopted you. He's keeping you. It's His doing. You. And that should provoke great thanksgiving to God in your heart and on your lips. And it gives us confidence to go out and proclaim this gospel, knowing that it will succeed. He will bring His own. 
uh, around the nations and across the street. Well, the cross of Jesus, so, so the cross of Jesus is indeed a, a, a victorious defeat. This is, this is what we come to the table. We, we see, we, we remember a, a broken body. We remember shed blood through the bread and through the cup. But they're not symbols of defeat. They're, they're reminders of victory. And so let's come and let's eat and drink together and rejoice in this victory. Let's pray. Father, would you help us as we sing, as we behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who's taken away our sin. May, may thanksgiving and joy um, both fill our hearts and overflow through our voices as we sing to you. And certainly as we come to this table, God, just flood our thoughts with, with gratitude for um, Christ, our substitute, standing in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve so that we might have the righteousness that he has and the life that he gives. We pray in his name. Amen.